All I'm saying is that by meditating or praying, the stuff that you don't like to do becomes less and less of a hassle. And you look at books like Dan Harris, 10% Happier. By meditating, I didn't really recognize much except that I'm 10% happier. Well, if that's true and you can get 10% happier every day, like in my nutrition program, we show people how to get 1% to 2% better a week. And nothing is a panacea, but at the end of the year, you're looking at your friends kind of like, what happened to you? And they're looking at you like, you look amazing. Hey there, my friend. Welcome back to another episode here on the Fit Father Project podcast. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi. I'm the founder and CEO here at the Fit Father Project, the host of this podcast, and truly the guy who is grateful to be bringing you this incredible conversation with my friend, Chris Kadowski. Chris is the founder and CEO of Influential Health Solutions. And I want to share a little bit about his background before we get into this amazing conversation, because Chris is one of these rare guys that is just obsessed over health and fitness and has been really studying this stuff for coming up on three decades as a strength coach to professional athletes, as a guy who's deeply interested in how to heal the body from pain and understand the fascial system of the body. We also get into some some stuff on life philosophy, meditation, nutrition, and gut health. We cover so much great stuff in this conversation with Chris in just an hour. So buckle up, stay tuned. I think you're going to really love this conversation. And Chris is a fit father through and through. He has a three-year-old daughter and he's implementing all this stuff into his life. So I wanted to bring him on here to give you a fresh perspective on some things that Chris is working on and he's figured out from trial and error to help you improve your life, improve your family's life. So without further ado, let's get Chris on the podcast and I hope you enjoy this conversation. Chris, welcome to the podcast, my friend. Really grateful to have you here today. Thank you for having me, Doc. The gratitude is all on my side. Well, I feel grateful as well because... I get to speak with a man today who has a lot of expertise on many domains as it relates to health, whether it's reconstructing the body through proper mechanics, looking at the philosophies and underpinnings of good nutrition, and just overall the pursuit of truth and living a life of intent. So the landscape is I want to cover a lot of stuff, but where I want to start is pain, because I'm talking to a guy who's written several books about pain and has studied biomechanics and fascia, kinesiology. So what is wrong with our current understanding of pain in the body? And I believe this is particularly relevant because a lot of people listening to this are in their 40s, 50s, 60s plus, and they have pain in areas of their body. How do you think about pain? What have you learned about pain? And why are some of the paradigms incorrect with how we're approaching things in today's day and age? Well, that's an unbelievable question, man. I'm going to preface this by saying one of the most simplest definitions of pain that I've ever heard came from Thomas Myers, and he said, pain is simply the body's intent to withdraw. Okay, that's it. When you step on a piece of glass, when you touch a hot plate, you don't think about what you are doing. The body withdraws from that action. When we look at pain in the human body, number one, most often, and I want to say in percentage terms, 90 to 95% of the time, pain is not felt where you feel it. Okay. I tell people there's two types of pain in the body and everybody says, I know good and bad. No, there's pain that you feel. And then there's the pain that your brain feels. Okay. Oftentimes the pain that you feel is not the pain that the brain feels. 
So that's going to be number two, which kind of throws everything that the legacy system does for a loop. Because if you have knee pain or if you have back pain, you're going to go in and you're going to see an osteopath or you're going to see a chiropractor and they are going to treat the back. Or if you have knee pain, you go and you see an osteopath, they are going to look at your knee. And where I start to scream, jump, yell, and throw a fit is say, why are we not looking at the fascia or the muscles or the nerves leading into the knee? Why are we not looking at anything downstream from the knee? Are we looking at their weight? Are we looking at their stress levels? Are we looking at how sleep deprived they are? Right? Are we looking at their nutrition? Because food makes bodies. We want to take a drug, a shot, or surgery and correct something that may be psychological, which leads me into my last, uh, I guess, part of the thesis. Anything that we perceive as pain in the body has been first perceived as pain in the environment. Now, people are going to listen to that and they're going to say, this dude's making no sense whatsoever. He's talking in circles. When we are talking about pain in the human body. We are looking at the fascia primarily as the dictator of whether or not we're operating optimally or whether or not we are in pain. And when we are looking at the fascial system, the fascia does not have eyes. Everything that it understands is perceived from how the organs are reacting. It's perceived from what it is hearing. And it's perceived from what it is feeling also with the food that we're eating. So pain is perception, number one. Now, if you wake up every single day and you're the same shit, different day type of dude, you're, I can guarantee you, you don't like how you feel. If you wake up and you don't like your job, if you wake up and you don't like your car, you don't trust your car to get you from A to B, you're in your car and it's sputtering and making noises and you're stressed out like, oh my God, am I going to get to work today on time? That can very easily turn into head, neck, and shoulder pain because you're literally, you're gripping the steering wheel and you're holding on for dear life. Like, oh God, am I, you know, am I, are my brakes going to work when, I, <laughs> when I'm on the freeway going 90 miles an hour when I have to stop? So we perceive pain. The general population is going to perceive pain as you know, I either fell down the stairs or I slipped on ice or I was playing basketball and I came down on somebody's ankle from a rebound and, and my ankle twisted. And that's where my pain came from. And rightly so. Sometimes that may happen, but I do get a lot of people that come into my practice and they say, my back hurts and I have no idea why. And, and, you know, a lot of them, they're high level CEOs. They're pissing vinegar every time they come in. And you can just feel the tension as soon as they open up their car door and you can see how locked up their body is when they're walking up my driveway into my office. And that is the number one trick that our body pulls on us is pain always does not have to be physical. For the most part, it starts psychological and it starts from how we perceive our environment and the amount of stress we are under on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay. I got to pause you there because there are a lot of key points. I want to paraphrase to, so you can clarify that I'm understanding and to make it clear to those who are listening. This body and this experience of being embodied as a human is a combination of 
the mental and the physical. And there's this interplay between the emotions and how that translates into the body through this perceived experience. So when we're stressed, this is going to be an experience in the brain and the nervous system that can create the perception of pain and change this fascia, which is the connective tissue. So for those who don't have degrees in anatomy, kinesiology, this fascial sheath, this is connective tissue that connects the body in planes and and wraps around our musculature and communicates with our organs and conducts electricity. So there's a lot we're learning about fascia. This system is a communication vehicle and there's alarm bells that go off when we're feeling stress. So a lot of pain can be acute. I could have a less cartilage in my knee and I have a bone-on-bone pain or if I have an ankle sprain. Yet at the same time, a lot of chronic pain can be long-standing, perhaps stress and emotionally based. Like I know my traps get stressed and tight sometimes when I'm working on my computer and neck pain, et cetera. Is this the kind of the crux of where we've gotten to so far in this discussion? Yeah, absolutely. And it's really difficult, man. You know, I've been hitting the podcast circuit pretty hard lately. And every time I get on and I mention fascia, I realize that We don't really have a very good working definition of it. And really, when we are trying to understand a fascia, or if somebody's saying that they understand fascia, it's not really that well understood. One of the reasons why I understand it, I feel better than most, is because I get to study it and work with it in human beings. And I've seen more miraculous things happen in my office than have happened, per se, either from a cortisone injection or from a surgery. And when you talk about something like having a knee being bone on bone, I'm finishing up working with a gentleman right now who has a x-ray showing how his right hip sucked up into the pelvis, bone on bone in there. The guy was at a 10, a pain of 10 every single day. And after about two months of working with me, his pain is down between a one and a three right now. So we even have this concept of We need to have cartilage or a bursa sac needs to be healthy or something like that in order to not have pain. And for me, it all goes back to the health of the fascia and everything else is a system. We know since 2009, Gibson et al. created a study showing that when we exercise, it is not the muscle tissue that gets sore, it's the fascia. And he did this with an irritant. People walk downhill, their legs got sore. The next day, he shot their muscle tissue with a sugar irritant. They didn't perceive any more soreness. He used an electron microscope, injected the same irritant into the ECM, the extracellular matrix between the skin and the muscle, and people instantly felt more soreness. So what are we training when we exercise? We think that we're training our muscles and they will get bigger. Yes, but why do they get bigger? To assist the fascia with more surface area to contract. When we are looking at the human body, the only and the first system that we need to pay attention to is the fascia. And Andrew Taylor still knew this back in 1899, the godfather of osteopathy. To find the cure of disease, one must first look to the fascia. That was one of his quotes. We knew this in 1899. And in 2009, the meetings of the mind get together in Boston for the first fascial conference, and they figure out we know probably about 4% of what this thing does, right? And, you know, everybody who's been through anatomy class, you cut open the skin. The professor says, take the connective tissue, throw it in the trash. Let's get to the, let's get to the meat. Let's get to the muscle and the, and the bone and the, the capillaries and arteries and the nerves. That's the good stuff. And what we're finding out is that dead fascia is pretty much worthless, but living human fascia is our archetype or our architecture. 
Yeah. Yeah. Everything that the body operates off of, it is this web. And like you said, it wraps, it rotates, it penetrates everything. We even find that it penetrates bone. So, I mean, what an ingenious system where everything that you can kind of see from a cadaver is literally secondary from what you need as a human being that's living. And Jean-Claude Gimberteau is really the pioneer in that. He came out with the architecture of human living fascia and everybody was like, whoa, what, you know, what is this? Like, oh my gosh, man, living fascia is just so incredibly important. And the researchers have been building off of his thesis ever since the late 1990s, I believe, something like that. This is fascinating. You made me think back to when I was in medical school and we were cutting away fascia and discarding it so you can get to the main vessels and the musculature and the organs. So totally, I mean, even in current medical school, it wasn't medical school that long ago. I mean, we're still kind of doing this stuff. It also makes me think of a lot of like ancient wisdom practices, like traditional Chinese medicine. You know, a lot of these acupuncture and scraping and different therapies that they kind of discovered worked are also working in major fascial junction points. Like they're throwing needles in their scraping in different fascial orientation planes. And it also makes me think from a philosophical perspective that our body is laid out in this mirrored layout, you know, central axis, two sides that are ideally mirrored. And there's planes that the fascia is basically wrapping. We have different planes of fascial tissue and it's like this web of interconnection. I think most people are listening, maybe think of fascia almost as like this spider web of connective tissue that's wrapping all around the body. We're going to learn so much more, but I do know that it has to do with like some electrical conductivity in the body and a connection through that. So what can people start to do without necessarily needing a degree or a deep study in this stuff to start to improve their fascia. If they have a sense that man, like for me, for example, left-sided tightness, what kind of at-home stuff can people do to start to improve their fascial health without necessarily needing to know the specifics? I have a subset of movements on YouTube right now called fascial maneuvers. There are 10 of them. Okay. We'll link those by the way in show notes for those listening. Awesome. So in 2017, I visited the Human Garage. I don't know if you've heard of Gary Lineham and, and his team at the Human Garage in Venice, California. Gary and I just kind of looked at each other like we were long lost brothers. And I told him that I'm a body worker. I'm telling him where to go in my body and what to do. And he's feeling the exact same thing. And he even told me, he was like, working on you helped me understand my body more. So we developed a really great relationship and now I'm affiliated with them and what they're doing. And what Gary and his team ended up creating was a series of 10 movements called fascial maneuvers. What we realize when we are treating fascia is we can literally take 60 to 70% of the tension or stress in our system away by doing these seemingly painless exercises. Okay. And what we like to classify them as it's not yoga, but just bear with me so people out there can understand it. It's the yoga 20 to 30 years from now. And what we find is that fascia loves two things. It loves to twist and it loves being as close as possible to a fetal position. Hmm. Okay. Now think about this for a second. We know the greatest concentration of fascia in the body is actually in the abdomen. You have fascia attaching to muscle fascia attaching to organ, fascia attaching organ to muscle and organ to bone. You have fascia attaching bone to muscle. Okay. You get shot in the stomach. 
the worst place ever to get shot, maybe besides the butt, right? But people that get shot in the stomach, uber amounts of pain because we have the greatest concentration of fascia in that area. Now, let's think about this. You get a stomach ache, right? Let's say it's a really bad one. Maybe you got food poisoning. What is your first inclination? You lay down on a couch or a bed, arms go across the stomach, knees come up nice and close, and you said you hunch. That is relieving. It's relieving in a whole bunch of other senses, too. Yeah. Embryologically, that is the position of growth and development. Exactly. Exactly. So it makes sense. Fascia is with us two weeks after we're conceived, and it's there till we die. Can't remove it from the body. Two of the most alarming statistics that we can ever understand about how important fascia is. It's developed before the brain and before some of the central organs. Okay. We can take, we can take a heart out. We can take parts of the brain out, right? Lung, kidney, liver. We can take a spleen or a gallbladder, right? Can't really take the bladder out. But when you look at, okay, like those are some pretty important things for the body. You cannot take fascia out of the body until you're dead. So these 10 movements, the first three will take about 50 to 60% of the stress out of the system, which then if you switch over to something like a lacrosse ball or a foam roller or a back buddy, if you're working on the traps or upper back, now that you remove some of the fascial stress, you can get down into the layers where you got to get rid of adhesions or trigger points or fibrosis or things like that. So it has made my job infinitely easier. When I work with people now in my practice, most people start off with the fascial maneuvers. We'll usually do two or three of them, areas that they still have sticking points. And then they'll get on the table and I'll start to work the fascia and the muscle and the nerve and the bone and whatnot. And it, like I said earlier, it's just, it's made my job 10 times easier. So everybody out there right now, you can go to YouTube, type in my name. I have all 10 fascial maneuvers up and we're adding more and more as we start to learn more and more. But really, if you want to improve the neuromuscular system, it starts with getting the stress out of the primary organ that affects those. So that's what people can do. And one of the reasons why I like it is because it's pain-free, okay? People do not have to get into really awkward poses like yoga. Let's say something like a tree pose. You watch the instructor get all the way down in a tree pose, and you can't even cross your one leg over the other, right? And you're, you're sitting there kind of like, this is dumb, I can't do it. Okay, so all of the movements, they can be done by anybody. I have had one or two people in my practice come in where they were in so much pain, it made more sense to start off on the table. They could not get into these twisting positions because they were so tight and they were in so much pain. Okay. So that's, that's very few people, but for everybody else, and especially if you don't have pain and you just want to care for your body and you don't want to develop it as you age, then that would even be more of a reason why you should do them. Totally. And it also makes me think too, when you think of a young body, like uh, like uh, maybe like you have a three-year-old child, right? Supple. Tissue is supple. 
And as we get older, it's like a process of dehydration, calcification, and like tightening of these tissues in a bad way. So it almost feels like this is the motion and lotion of like the rotation that we need to do, especially for people as they get older and they want to, people often like to play like trunk rotating sports, whether it's golf or tennis or stuff like this, man, keeping your fascia healthy seems like paramount. Now we could do the rest of this podcast on fascia. But I want to pause here because I think people have a good takeaway to go and we're going to look up in the show notes, do this primary movements on fascia, maybe do them in the morning. Key that I'm thinking here, it's like consistency is the game. This is not something you just do once and you're magically there. You continuously repattern and get that fascia to open. I want to transition though to maybe some of your other topics of expertise. I'd love for you to speak to um, your philosophies on nutrition because I know you also wrote a book on nutrition. Let's talk about it. How do you feel that humans today should eat or maybe even think about nutrition? Okay, we're going to back up there for a second, and we're going to talk about something that you mentioned before that question. There are parameters that we need to be concerned about in the body, specifically in, re- in relation to age. Okay, The first one is at age 30. We know by the time people are reaching age 30, like you said, tissue is drying out. We're already getting stiff. Okay. That's number one. Okay. Number two is we are looking at bacteria in the human body. And what we know right now is that there is not just one genome in the human body, it's not just the human DNA. Okay. We have the bacterial genome and we have the mitochondrial genome. And then we have the DNA, the the human genome, all right? So when we are looking at age, for instance, all right, as we start to age, in our middle 20s to 30s, we have decreasing levels of bifidobacteria and acromantia. By the time we hit 30, 35, we are producing less melatonin in the human body also, So you look at a child. My daughter is three years old. She sleeps for 12 hours, high melatonin production. By the time she wakes up to the time she goes to bed, she is a neuron firing off the wall. Okay? Uber amounts of energy. Studies show she has very high levels of bifidobacteria and acromantia. So now, when we look at aging past 30, we get to three stages of age-related decline, where the older you get, the faster you get older. And guess what? They are dictated by the fascia. So by the time we are 36, the ECM, our extracellular matrix, this skin between our skin and our muscle, flips a switch and says, we need more pro-inflammatory properties in the body because we're getting older, okay? The next time this gets ramped up is when we're 60, and then the third time that it gets ramped up is when we're 78, okay? So by the time we turn 36, we already need to be increasing our levels of acromantia and bifidobacteria, and we need to make sure that we are keeping our levels of melatonin high. Now, how do we do that? We do that through nutrition, and we can biohack it by either having blue light blocking glasses on if we're on the computer for eight hours a day, and then we can use something like nighttime blue light blocking glasses as well if we're going to sit down and watch Netflix or a movie or something like that. Preserve 
the body's ability to make melatonin. How do we boost bifidobacteria and how do we boost acromancia? All of this stuff is what changed my life last year when I read Joel Green's book, The Immunity Code. And then I am now halfway through becoming an immune-centric coach to help other people with their nutrition and whatnot. But basically, the foods that feed bifidobacteria are going to be resistant starches, steel cutouts, something like that, dry, don't cook them, all right? You're going to look at something like cold, sweet, or regular potatoes, baked potatoes, okay? Bake them, let them cool down for 10 to, 10 to 15 minutes. The sugars in the potatoes turn to resistant. You feed your gut bacteria, and this is why it's important. You feed the gut bacteria, the good gut bacteria, it gets happy and talks to your mitochondrial genome and says, hey, we have the right amounts of energy coming into the body. Tell the human genome that we can perform optimally. So what we find out is that, once again, the legacy system, although they are helping people, are somewhat going about it in a non-sustainable fashion. Because by the time guys are even getting into their middle and late 30s, there are some of my clients, they're already on TRT. And what we find out is that you can be on TRT for about 20, 30 years, and then it gets exhausted. Okay, so by the time these guys are 66, 70, they're going to experience age-related decline on an exponential fashion, where if we focus on increasing bifidobacteria and acromancia in the human body, feeding the gut bacteria, which tells the mitochondria and the human genome that we can have energy, right? That's going to be a lot more sustainable. All I have to do, eat resistant starches, eat a lot of plant polyphenols, Dr. Gundry's Vital Reds, green tip bananas. I recently, I can't remember the name of it, but I recently found a product that has just an absolutely incredible effect with they only source out green tip bananas, they mash them up, and it comes in a powder. And I could not believe the first three days I took one teaspoon in the morning. The third day, I had like four or five bowel movements in the morning. No, that's doing something. And I just, I I couldn't believe how this stuff was like pushing everything through and emptying me out. It's the only thing that I changed. I didn't eat differently, have hot sauce or, you know, take diuretics or anything like that. And all it was doing was, I I had more energy too. All it was doing was reorganizing my gut biome and my small and my large intestine and pushing things out. If you look at a company called Layer Origin, they have HMO, which is great for phytobacteria, human milk oligosaccharides. And then they also now make apple peel powder, which is what feeds acromancia. All right. So when you feed bifidobacteria, bifidobacteria feeds acromancia, and then bifidobacteria and acromancia feed the rest of the good gut populations. Those are the only two bacteria you need to be concerned with. And what do we do? We do this protocol every other day, okay, through our food. So Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays, we're going to, for lunch, have our resistant starch. And then for dinner, We can have cruciferous vegetables, or if you want to have something like hot rice, cooked hot rice, you're like, I just, I can't take the the cold anymore. Okay. Which backing up cold brown and white rice will feed the good gut bacteria. 
And then we do fat and fasting on Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday. And then Sunday is kind of like an offset day where you have a little bit more room for things that you can eat that maybe aren't so healthy. Pancakes, maybe you want a croissant sandwich for lunch, something like that. Nice big fat steak for dinner. But what we find out is that too much fasting creates the same amount of problems as if you're not. When we look at specific diets like carnivore, like vegan, vegetarian, um, Mediterranean, paleo, they work until they don't. And that's what happened to me when I hit 40. The metabolic typing diet that I was doing, it was ketogenic-ish. It stopped working. I didn't like how I felt. And my energy started to fluctuate, but it was maintainable. When I hit 41, my energy started to fluctuate even more. Okay. And I was like, rather than being like energetic and then not energetic for a little bit and then energetic for a while and then not not energetic, it flipped. I woke up, I wasn't energetic. I had energy when I ate. It dipped a half hour later, no energy for three hours, ate, had energy for a half hour. I'm like, my system, something's broken. I got to fix it. Okay. So by the time I hit 42, started having problems sleeping. And I started gaining inflammation, got into stage two adrenal fatigue. And I was like, I know I burned myself out, but this is not like me. Like I've never gotten this bad. And basically what I ended up finding out that was that my gut was broken and my gut had broke. I want to say probably around the age of 25, 26. That's when I started my journey into metabolic typing. And basically what I did was I was on the verge of pre-diabetes because I ate nothing but carbohydrates. I did not introduce any fat into my body whatsoever. I got to the point where I was so extraordinarily tired all day, every day. I was like, I need to change how I eat. Read a whole bunch of books. William Walcott's Metabolic Typing really struck me. Got certified. The first day I woke up, had three eggs, three pieces of bacon. I was lit. I was lit. I mean... I couldn't believe how much energy I had, how much I could focus. And basically, instead of correcting the problem, I got rid of everything that was producing the problem. So by the time I got into my 40s, as that age-related decline started to increase and accelerate, my body simply said, you can no longer ignore this. You can't ignore it anymore. By avoiding it, now the problems are going to accelerate because my body's not as efficient. So as I went on my healing journey once again, and I figured out what was wrong with me, and I fixed it, I have more energy than when I was 18 now. I have more energy than my daughter at some time. She's telling me, she's like, Papa, stop, stop, stop. It's like, you got to slow down and just stop being so crazy. But that's the type of vitality that I'm used to. And, And anybody that's out there that is not operating in vitality, you don't know what you're missing. You really have no idea what you're missing. I want to pause you there for a second, and I want to relate this to the kinds of things that our program members are doing. And I'm, I was smiling as you're originally recounting the nutrition advice that you're giving out because it tracks super similarly to how we approach things with the Fit Father and Fit Mother programs. One of the things you mentioned 
is the priority on working on gut health is massive. And notice that you didn't say, go take this probiotic supplement. You said, let's get prebiotic fiber in there. You mentioned green tip bananas. So bananas that still have some green on them because they're full of these resistant starches, these fructooligosaccharides. Very good. Now, one of the things that we do with our program members is one, we typically have people do lower carb breakfasts because it just works well with people's circadian rhythm, cortisol's rising, and it keeps the blood sugar in a pretty stable thing in the morning. But we have them include in these shake recipes without them knowing the specifics, prebiotic fibers. And for lunches, they're getting salad and dinner sweet potatoes. So you're baking in these prebiotic fibers into the plan, which supports good gut health. And then what you mentioned too, is the idea of fasting. You know, you definitely want some because it creates a beneficial change in the body, certainly hormonally and with inflammation, but too much can cause a problem. And I also was thinking too, with the whole people who are going very carnivore keto, a lot of them are kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater. As you said, they're removing a lot of inflammatory things, but perhaps missing out on the power of these prebiotic fibers and starches that could be in the, the nutrition plan. That's why we like the right number of carbs in the plan, but it's just like the right portion at the right times. And a lot of these are helping because if you're feeding just two macronutrients, protein and fats, you're creating a pressure on the gastrointestinal system and the gut bacteria that will probably change things. So this balanced approach makes a ton of sense. And I love that you mentioned the idea of like free meals where you're intentionally building this in. Once a week, you're having something there. It's good psychologically. It's actually good physically from like a leptin perspective. It can be, depends on what kind of things you have. This is good. But I think the take home for people listening, especially those who are not as scientifically oriented, is getting good fiber to feel your gut bacteria is huge. And the concept we talk about here of the perfect plate, where for dinner, people are having half their plate with some kind of veggies they love, a quarter with some kind of healthier carb. Now people might be eating their cold sweet potatoes after listening to this or their rice, and then a quarter of protein tends to work great with giving the system what it needs. So that makes a ton of sense. And the protecting melatonin as we age too, right? Because that's not just good for circadian rhythm. It's an antioxidant and anti-inflammatory in the brain, the central nervous system. And I'm looking at what's happening for so many people. Cognitive decline is on the rise massively from dysregulated blood sugar, probably from melatonin disruptions. A lot of really powerful stuff you shared there. Yeah, absolutely, man. One of the other things that I want to share with my fit fathers out there that really, really helped me Two things, actually. If you do a lot of cardio, take some form of beet juice or beet powder before you do the cardio. And what that does is it vasodilates, it opens up our blood vessels, okay? We are going to be able to create almost a heart-healthy environment while we're doing the cardiovascular work. The second thing is in age-related decline, what we find out is we just don't recover as fast from heavy weightlifting. There's a protein called ERK that starts to decline in the human body when we reach the age of 36. So how do we hack this? How do we turn that back on? Six hours after you weight train, you want to take two supplements, phacoidin, approximately around 500 milligrams, and then you also want to take around 3,000 milligrams of vitamin C. It's an incredible hack that turns ERK on right at the correct moment as a young body would that will help you feel less sore the day after or any other days also. The first time I did that hack, I could not believe it. I woke up the next day, nothing ached, and my muscles were sore like they were when they were young. When prior to that, it was like the last three years, Doc, I mean, every day that I'm training 
and just I was training in perpetual soreness and achiness. Nothing recovered. And because I've been lifting weights my whole life, I'm just like, okay, whatever. You know, like it is what it is. Like I'm always sore. But when I found out that I could do something about it, I mean, it just, it totally changed my world. And now here I am once again, being able to weight train or I primarily do CrossFit. I have a full gym in my garage and in my backyard and whatnot, but I can train. I can do what I love. That's basically what I'm trying to say. I can do what I love again, instead of being like, Oh, I'm old. You know, I better just go warm up the uh, tennis court and the golf clubs. And I can't lift weights anymore when I love it. I love to lift weights. It's been ingrained in me ever since I was like eight years old. It's all I want to do. Yeah, it's truly the fountain of youth. And I think it's it's really cool that you mentioned that about the beetroot powder. Very potent vasodilator. We actually just reformulated our super fuel protein powder we make for our program members. And we included betaine in there as well. One of the active ingredients in that beetroot powder, because we just know it's so good for circulation. It's like a natural enhancer. And I think that's really cool, really important. And we'll also, I'll get those names of the supplements you mentioned, obviously the vitamin C people know, but the other one phacoidin, and we'll get that into the show notes as well. So people are interested. It's a brown seaweed. Okay. Nice. It's also very anti-carcinogenic and it'll give you a little bit of a test boost too. You can take it at night if you want with some NAC and some glycine. And basically what you're going to do is regenerate like Wolverine, or you can take it, like I said, six hours after you exercise, after you weight train. Cardiovascular, yeah, it'll help. Let's say if you do a lot of running, obviously you're going to create muscular soreness that way, but it works better when you're lifting heavy weights. Like if you just love to go and bodybuild or power lift or Olympic lift, or if you do any type of CrossFit or cross training, it's really powerful stuff when you look at weight training. Nice. Well, our guys and our gals listening to this do, you could say CrossFit-like workouts, like metabolic resistance training, kettlebell swings, squats, shoulder presses, renegade rows, push-ups, and circuits. So that seems like that'd be very valuable. Now, I want to switch gears one more time. This will be like the third part of this conversation. And I want to talk about some of the things that you've discovered that have been most impactful on mindset and maybe life philosophy. Because when I was reading your bio coming into this, I was very struck by the fact that one, you've worked with a lot of athletes in college settings, university settings, and you would have some of your athletes read some essays by Ralph Waldo Emerson or poems by Walt Whitman and things like this. And it got me thinking, man, I think Chris has a lot to share on that front too. So I would love to kind of just open the floor for you to share some of the impactful things you've learned about mindset, truth, philosophy, and perhaps how this all ties together in the conversation we've had up to this point. My belief, just want everybody to get their tinfoil hat on right now, is that we are a spirit before we're born and we're a spirit when we die. So what are we here for? We are here to have a human experience. And there's a lot of people that I encounter where the physical is the only thing that they perceive as real. When in fact, it is the most fleeting thing. When I recognized that fact was the day where I started to make meditation a priority. Prior to that, I thought it was just a bunch of woohoo, you know, like my brother had been doing it 20 minutes here and there, and I always used to make fun of him, right? And I was just like, wow, Nick, like you're so silly, you know, like uh, you feel our you all zen now. And really working on the spirit and working on your ability to deal 
with the emotions that this life brings, I feel is the one true greatest work that a lot of people are missing. And I think that you can probably agree with me when I say most of the time, emotions control us. We do not control emotions. And Ram Das said most beautifully, he said that only God knows unconditional love. All of us are here to experience the conditions of it. And he said, most of us will find that there will be conditions under which we will not love. So there are times where we will allow people into our life and they will hurt us and 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 hurt us. And and we'll kind of erect like a martyr flag for that and say, you know, no, I, I love him or her, even if it's a son or a daughter. And What I have found, I was previously married and then I remarried now, and obviously we have a a child together. In my previous marriage, I found conditions under which I wouldn't love anymore, where I actually loved myself more than the way that I was being treated. So I ended that marriage. Okay. And that was what catapulted me into realizing that the person who is most important in your life is you. And I had actually learned that probably about 10 years ago from a gentleman named Dominguito in the mountains in Peru. We sat down one night around a fire. I was doing a trek to Machu Picchu. Then he asked everybody, there was about six of us. He said, who's the most important person in your life? And everybody was like, my mother, my best friend, my dad, my dog. You know. And he goes, those are really great answers, but they're all relatively wrong. And he goes, the most important person in your life is you. If you don't take care of yourself, which I hope all my fit fathers, I hope they either have, you know, they're turning the volume up in their earphones or they're really listening right now. If you do not take care of yourself, you're not going to be around to take care of your wife or your daughter or your son, or if you're taking care of your parents right now, okay, you are the most important person in your life. All right. And I really feel that people will look at somebody who says that and say, you are selfish. Like that sounds very selfish. And when you understand the thinking behind it, it is not. I'm taking a moment of selfishness in order that I can serve others to the best of my ability. And what I've done and what I've seen several other people do and what I see other people do is burn themselves out to the point where other people then have to take care of them. And that was never their original intention. They said, I'm not going to eat healthy because I have to take care of this. I'm not going to go and exercise because I have to do this. I'm not going to get the sleep that I need because this is more important. And what I'm trying to help people understand is all of that other stuff is very, very fleeting And it's going to disappear if you don't take care of yourself first. There was a couple of things there. I try to stay neutral. There are a lot of people that go way off into the spirit world. They have more than half of their body in the spirit world. And, you know, they have like just one little toe left over here. And I'm not going to say that as long as you meditate and pray every day that you never have to go to work and earn another dollar or maybe do stuff that you don't like to do. All I'm saying is that by meditating or praying, the stuff that you don't like to do becomes less and less of a hassle. And you look at books like Dan Harris, 10% Happier. By meditating, I didn't really recognize much except that I'm 10% happier. Well, 
If that's true, and you can get 10% happier every day, like in my nutrition program, we show people how to get 1% to 2% better a week. And nothing is a panacea, but at the end of the year, you're looking at your friends kind of like, what happened to you? And they're looking at you like, you look amazing. Okay? And what happened was they declined 1% per day, where you reversed that, that decline, and you actually got younger by 1% per day. When you develop a routine, and like you said, consistency is key. Nothing happens without consistency. Very, very important. As long as you're consistent, start off wherever you can, five minutes a day, 15 minutes a day, it doesn't matter. I use a program called Holosync, which basically does the meditating for me. I don't know if you ever heard of it. It's an electronic program. You listen to a bunch of tones and a bunch of chimes, and there's a carrier frequency underneath that irritates the neurons in your brain. And what that does is it raises the perceived level of stress to the brain. So stuff that used to really freak you out, you now kind of look at and you're like, that's not that big of a deal. And what happens when we can control our emotions? Solutions come to us much faster and much easier. Rather than freaking out and being like, oh my God, I don't know what to do. And then you act completely impulsively and make matters worse. A lot of people say, all of a sudden, life starts to work in slow motion. And what is that? All it is is awareness. Rather than being busy with 20,000 other things on your mind, and then something comes out of left field and you can't focus because you have no awareness, you don't even know what's going on, you get confused, you make the wrong move, where when you meditate, especially meditation in the morning, you're going to take all of that baggage out early on. You clear all the garbage from your being, from your person, and now you can actually operate in the real world throughout the rest of the day, focusing on what you need to do rather than worrying about the past or being pissed off about the past or being worried about the future. Now you're here. And when you operate from the human here and now, everybody knows you can be quite productive. Yeah, a beautiful answer. I'd love to comment on a couple of those things. Is a lot of this tracks with my own personal experience. I think the benefit of meditation that you really captured, or at least one of the many, is that it does center you into awareness because you're there practicing being aware. And that gives you the ability as you take that into the rest of your day to respond instead of react. It enables you to be conscious in terms of the choices you're making. This is like a top-down approach, if you will. Working on awareness translates into action. What's amazing too is a lot of our program members that come through our programs, we work bottom up. We start in the physical domain of adding more conscious structure to nutrition, moving the body with more intention. And it also translates up to a more peaceful way of being. And it, it has been very impactful to me. I was very inconsistent for many years with meditation because I didn't have that deep connection to understanding of spirit, which I have my tinfoil hat on too. If you want to say that, I track with that 100%. I do this you know, from a deep spiritual place, God first for me. And I love it. I think it's a practice that certainly can help a lot of people, Is particularly in the morning, spending a few minutes to just sit, whether it is a prayer practice, whether it is using you know, something like you have that's creating some kind of tone. It just gives you the ability to be more conscious and less reactive. And man, you do that, 
that's coloring and influencing the rest of your life. I mean, I think 10% is being modest in terms of the amount of benefit you can get from this, but very, very cool. Yeah. Your whole world changes. I have a question. As a parent, how are you, how are you teaching and translating some of these deep learnings and truths that you've discovered to your kids, to your daughter? Are you working on anything with her and her development? I know it depends on the age of your kids, but at least how are you thinking about maybe conveying some of these practices and understandings as a dad? Sure. I mean, you know, she's going to be using the Headspace app when she turns old enough where she'll be doing little five, 10 minute meditations here and there. What's interesting is that my wife was meditating along with me. And when she was pregnant, she obviously meditated in the morning with me while she was pregnant with Emerson. And what's really, really interesting right now is we thought it was just because she was in her crib, but now we took her out of her crib and she would always wake up 7, 7.30 and she would lay in her crib, talk, sing, play, you know, for about an hour until she started to get irritated and be like, why isn't anybody coming to get me or I want to get out of here? And we thought that that was going to stop once we took her out of the crib and got her into the bed. So we're preparing. She does the same thing. She wakes up around 7, 7.30. She stays in her bed or she at least stays in her room and she'll get a book and flip through the book or she'll talk to Teddy or she'll talk to Kitty or she'll sing or just lay there and relax, right? And to me, she's already on the path. She already knows. It's already been ingrained. She already understands. Wake up and let's be slow. Let's reflect. Let's kind of warm up the engine before we get going. But like you said before, I was having some of my athletes read from Emerson, read from Edgar Allan Poe, and just develop deep, critical thinking. And you just don't see a whole lot of that going on these days, man. You see a lot of, like I said, impulsivity, a lot of thoughtlessness, a lot of what's the cool thing to do. And to me, that's not our purpose here. That's a distraction. It can be part of, you know, you you don't go to Walt Disney World and just go on one ride. You know, like, let's check everything out and let's entertain variety. And when you see women going to get a Brazilian butt lift with stuff that you patch car tires, it just, it breaks my heart. And I wonder what type of home they grew up in, what they're learning and what they are really interested in. Because to me, it seems like they're lost. You know, to me, it seems like they're lost. My daughter, and you know, like everybody would say, my daughter is beautiful, man. She is absolutely gorgeous. And people see her And they always look at me and they say, you're going to be in some trouble when she gets older. And I go, yeah, why is that? Oh, well, you know, she's going to be bringing home boy after boy after boy after boy. And you're going to have to get a gun or a knife or something like that. And I look at them and I say, I don't worry about a single thing because she is going to grow up knowing what a self-reliant man is. And she is going to make her choices of boyfriends based off of that. I fully intend that is how I'm going to cultivate her and have her grow up. So if she makes the decision to like another boy, I know that that was a decision that I helped her make. So I don't worry about the boys that she's going to be bringing here. If you are, that says a lot about you as a parent. You need to make changes to yourself first. 
okay, before you try changing someone else? Beautiful answer. I really resonate with basically all of that. And I want to conclude this with two things. One, a question we ask everyone who comes on the podcast is, what does it mean to you to be a fit father? And then two, after that, I would love for you to share with us ways that people who are inspired this conversation can connect with you deeper to learn more about your work, to help them fix their pain, maybe to dial in some more nutrition stuff, all of this. That'll be the second thing. But first, what does the idea of fit father mean to you? To me, being a fit father means controlling your health, man, controlling your own health. And I tell people, you know, you can go out to a restaurant every once in a while, but if you don't control your food, where it was sourced, what ingredients are being used, canola oil, vegetable oil, extra virgin olive oil, you know, or butter, if you don't control your food, you're not going to control your health. Well, if you're not in control of your own health and you have to put it in the hands of somebody else, good luck with that. That's all I have to say. And it troubles me that this information is available to anyone, but not everybody chooses to search it out or accept it. I guess that's what people like me are for because that's all I do for the last 24 years. Strength coach, nutritionist, body worker, semi-spiritual, um, you know, I don't want to say expert, but the being, yeah. semi-spiritual being, whatever you want to say. So to me, being a fit father means... Instead of maybe flipping through Instagram, let me pull up a research article and really see if I understand this, if it resonates with me, and if I can actually proactively institute the knowledge in my nutrition or my body work routine or in my strength conditioning or in my sleep or in reducing stress levels or something like that. Learn about how to take your health in your own hands. That's what being a fit father means to me. Great answer. A couple of words that come to mind is one, sovereignty. Sovereignty, number one. Two, wisdom, because that's information that's applied. And yeah, and three, like modeling this stuff and really having the desire to make this a priority. Beautiful answer, Chris. And finally, how can people connect with you? Where are some places? In the show notes, again, we'll have the 10 movements as well so people can find you on YouTube. But beyond that, where would you like people to connect with you? So my email is rather lengthy. I just rebranded my business. It used to be Influential Health Solutions. You can contact me via email, chris at influentialhealthsolutions.com. Or you could DM me on Instagram at rebuilt, R-I-B-Y-L-T. Okay, nice. Either one of those. And we'll, we'll throw those in show notes as well so people who have those. Chris, this is a pleasure. We covered a lot. You said it before we hopped on, we could probably use four hours instead of one hour. But for the sake of people continuing on with their days, we will pause here. And I'd love to have you back at some time in the future and go even deeper on some of these topics. Absolutely, man. Would absolutely love to. The pleasure's all mine. And uh, really, I hope everybody out there, I provided a decent bit of value for you today. And don't hesitate to contact me. All initial consultations are free even if you just have what you may think is a silly or stupid question, let me just provide some clarity for you and hit me up. Nice. Thanks, Chris. And I appreciate everyone listening to today's episode of the Fit Father Podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Fit Father Project Podcast. If you love what you heard, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. It really helps spread this show to more men who need this valuable info. 
to watch full video episodes of this podcast and other motivational videos to inspire your training and more, visit our Fit Father Project YouTube channel. It's free and everything's made for busy guys over 40 like you. Visit youtube.com forward slash Fit Father Project to get access to our entire video library. And finally, if you or someone in your life is interested in becoming a fit father or needs help losing weight, building muscle, and living healthier after age 40, then visit fitfatherproject.com where you can see our proven programs, supplement line for guys 40 plus, and free meal plan and workouts to get you started. This is Dr. Anthony Balduzzi signing off. I'll see you in the next episode.